You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, if you haven't been watching yet, I'm doing a new series on my Facebook page called Every Day is Different, where I give you a glimpse into the life of a Broadway producer, all the things I do with live episodes every single day. So go check it out. Go to facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport and watch the vids. All of them are there, including the one from the very beginning. Check it out. You'll never know what I'm going to do today. We'll see you there. And now on with the podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. And I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. My name is Ken Davenport. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. I'm very excited about our guest today, a real craftsman of the theater, I consider him. Please welcome to the podcast the Tony-nominated lyricist, Mr. Michael Corey. Welcome, Michael. Welcome, indeed. Good to be here. So, Michael has a whole bunch of credits, an extensive career in opera as well as musical theater, and I want to talk a little bit about that, including the, the fantastic opera piece, uh, Harvey Milk. Here on Broadway, the lyricist of War Pain, Great Gardens, Dr. Zhivago, Michael, why lyrics? Like, where did the idea of you writing lyrics come into play? It never really occurred to me. I grew up liking Broadway, but I liked everything in those days. And, you know, I was born in 1955. And I was there when the Beatles hit the scene and all of that. And the first show I ever saw was Hello, Dolly. And that was all around 1964-65, wasn't it? So I was simultaneously immersed. And I liked it all. And when I liked something, I would listen to it every single day for a year and nothing else. And I probably learned a lot about lyrics from the Beatles and from show albums, though I didn't realize it. And... I started out in classical music, of all things, with a harpsichord scholarship. Oh, and, like you uh, do, like most people. Yeah, like most people. At Brandeis University, and I was sitting there in the music room with a recorder player on this side and a lute on this side, tootling in my ear with Renaissance music on a Baroque harpsichord with two keyboards. And I just said, this is going nowhere. I'm never going to make a living at this. And so I left that school, and I came to New York in about 1975, and started studying journalism at NYU. I found a posting on the wall of the jobs room. They wanted an assistant, a free assistant, to open the mail at the Village Voice. And so I ripped it down, so I was the only applicant. Seizing that opportunity. Seizing opportunity. I was a go-getter from the beginning. And I met all kinds of interesting people at the Village Voice. You know, some of the the great names in the new journalism at that time. And I started writing about gay rights and arts and became an editor and dropped out of school and became an editor. At 21, I was editing a lot of newspapers, Chelsea newspaper, a West Side newspaper, and an East Side newspaper, the local news, local arts, local advertising. And, you know, they were free papers that you put in the lobbies of buildings. And when the janitor wouldn't throw them out, people would read them. And I was I had felt imbued with power at age twenty one. I was like, you know, I could waltz into Bella Absog's 
party at Studio 54 with my press car. I could go anywhere I want. And those days, I think that was Ford to City drop dead when New York was going bankrupt. It wasn't like now. Nothing was being built. There was scaffolding all over the place. But it was really interesting because punk was being born and CBGBs and disco was happening at the same time and Broadway was in a total funk. I mean, there was Andrew Lloyd Webber and there was Andrew Lloyd Webber and there was Andrew Lloyd Webber. And I had no notion of doing anything of the sort. But after putting out all these newspapers, I got, you know, worn down. It was a, a, I had a staff, but I was there till three in the morning every night and my husband, who I was my husband then, I had met him on the day of independence, the day of the tall ships, and we're still together 40-something years later. He didn't see much of me because I was always at the paper, and I got burnt out, and I decided I want to go back to music. Not harpsichord, but I want to write my own. And there really was no one to fill in the words. I thought people, you just wrote music and people filled in the words. And I went to uh, an ASCAP workshop for pop writing. First song I wrote words to was called You Are My Instrument of Love. And they told me, you know what? You should be writing for theater. <laughs> they didn't think too much of it, and I thought that was vaguely insulting. But then I found Lehman Engel, and I did start writing my own words. And I, I found out that having worked all those years in newspapers was really my training for writing lyrics. You know, you're in a room with people. What's the best headline for this? It's got to be out in an hour to get to the printers. Whoever has the best, that's what it is. And I think I learned everything I learned about collaborating from newspapers. And, you know, journalism is the lead paragraph has to be who, why, what, where. Isn't that the same as songwriting? Short phrases. I really, that's where I got it from. So it was not an easy transition, but a logical one for me. Nodding my head here because... I've noticed this with a bunch of, of writers in the theater. Lynn Aaron, Joe Pietro, Rick Ellis all started in advertising. Total Similar, makes sense. It's right? the same thing. You have to have a slogan. You have to have a phrase or a hook that encaptures the message quickly. And you were writing for an audience. I was writing for, yeah. Readers. Readers. Right? It had and, to be captivated. And it had to, we didn't have that much space in these giveaway papers, so we had to hit the important marks early. Anyway, I told Ivan, I'm going to make a go of this. And while I was a hotshot editor of three newspapers, and you were uh, working in the nonprofit dance, where they were laying each other off every other week so they could collect unemployment and come back to work, that's how the dance boom happened. I said, I supported you. Now you're going to support me. And then I gave up all power and money for the rest of my life, <laughs> basically. But... I did have a show produced within a couple of years, and then that was it. And what I didn't do was write my own music, because the first opportunity for a, a produced show that came along was with working with another composer. And I found I had the ability to write to music because I used to compose music first. And obviously, there's been a number of lyricists like that Sondheim, of course, at Kleban, mm -hmm. uh, another one. Obviously, there are great assets. Wonderful composers, and I know Ed really always wanted to compose his music. wasn't given the chance. Sondheim did, and what a, what a joy for the world. But 
I never had the hankering to go back to it. No, never. Because Not really. What I do is I do compose a, a tune every time it somehow comes together. And I feel that if it sounds musical to me, if it has a musical feeling, then another composer will find the music in it. And I never speak the lyrics out loud unless I'm asked to because I don't want to give them the rhythm. I don't want to cramp their style. But there's the little dirty secret of writing lyrics is that you're always writing to music because once you write the first A or the first verse, the second one has to conform to it. So aren't you really writing to a music that doesn't exist yet? And one does that so that an audience can hear it more than once. That's the difference with opera. Yeah, you could just write. I was going to ask you about that, the difference between the two. Well, I like to blur the lines. You know, I never thought I would get into opera either. I was writing a crazy show, which was being directed by Richard Foreman at Playwrights Horizons, and it was called Where's Dick? And it was about uh, a missing detective who was very much like Dick Tracy, who never shows up. And finally, the cast of characters decided that they were Dick Tracy and that there's a little dick in all of us. So that set New York slightly on its ear and made a, a little bit of buzz, more, anyway, more than most readings do these days. And somebody declared that it was an opera. And Houston Grand Opera said, we will produce it. And I said, oh, good, now I'm an opera libretto. <laughs> I didn't know that I thought very much differently about the way I approached it. But I learned more about opera as I did write it. I learned that you do have to write differently for the voice, you have to really use those vowel sounds. You have to really give them the stuff they sing. And it's really about larger-than-life characters, heroes, villains. That seems to suit opera best, and I found that what I gravitate towards. Also, that was a time when I couldn't get arrested in the theater. I mean, I could get a, a, a reading at Playwrights Horizons, but really what they were producing in those days, at least commercially, was a lot of British imports. And you, let's go back to that, your first show, you said, I got a play produced in a couple of years. So what was that? For oh, show well, that were... show was based on a play by Shaw, the only Western he ever wrote. And it was called The Showing Up of Blanco Poslet. It was shortened to Blanco for the Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival, which later became the Great Lakes Theater Festival in Cleveland and uh, Ohio Theater and Playhouse Square. And it was a big show, a Western with a horse and an orchestra. And I wrote it on the spot. It was like six weeks to write it. It was a big, crazy, interesting mess. I left Cleveland with such a feeling of relief. It reminds me of that, that moment that Moss Hart describes when he was talking about his first play, The Beloved Bandit, and how he was so relieved to get out of the theater. That's how I felt. And then I went back to writing my original stuff. But other shows came along, and the first one that clicked was this crazy cartoon opera called Where's Dick? And I followed it with a crazy opera called Hopper's Wife, which was about the painter Edward Hopper's wife, who evolves into the gossip columnist Head Hopper. I was reflecting on the wars between high culture and low culture, and the NEA culture wars with Jesse Helms and Robert Mapplethorpe. It was a crazy, funny, obscene opera. And my composer I was working with, Stuart Wallace, and I became known as the guys who write the dirty operas. 
unique niche. Yes, well, I mean, fine. But then along came Harvey Milk, which was a big opera, and it was the probably the first big out opera. And I knew I wanted to make it epic. We decided to go back to the old opera form of three acts, two intermissions, which is interesting because, as you as you know, as a producer, uh, most stories these days on television and movies are written in three acts without intermissions. And 90-minute musicals today, people love them because they can be told in three acts with no intermissions. That's how a story works. Somebody told me, somebody smart. I think maybe it was Ellen Fitzhugh, the lyricist. For Act 1, you get them up a tree. Act 2, you throw stones at them. Act 3, you get them down. It's a useful rule. And so I went back to this epic form, and it was fantastic. And it made a big splash at its opening in Houston. And it made a big splash in New York when New York City Opera fucked it up. And then it made another big splash in San Francisco when we got it right, and they recorded it, and it was performed on the anniversary of Harvey Milk's assassination. And there was so moving. I mean, I'd actually moved, gone to San Francisco to interview people that he knew who hadn't died of AIDS yet, his survivors, his friends, and campaign workers. And I, the journalist in me made tapes of all of that, and I wove it into the opera. They all exist. They're in the Lincoln Center Library now, if they've taken them off cassette tape and put them on. But, yeah, we made opera, and we mixed fact with fiction. The first act was the mythological every gay man coming out of the closet. Began with Harvey Milk's arrest as a boy in Central Park. He gets handcuffs clapped onto him. Rose up, an opera fan, still with the handcuffs. And it's not till the Stonewall rebellion, uprising, that he's able to break the handcuffs. That's the end of Act 1. It goes to San Francisco. Act 2 is his rise to politics. Act 3 is the conflicts and the assassination. And he was prescient. He knew he was going to die. And the night before, he made a tape of his last will. And it was, if a bullet enters my brain, let that bullet open every closet door. And I was interviewing his lover, whose name was Scott Smith. And he gave me the tape. And so we wove that into the music. And we sampled it, as they say, and, and they played it in the orchestra. And it was amazing. And then that night when they did the candlelight march to the opera house, and then everyone in, we put in some of those people actually in the opera. And we mixed it all up. And I just loved that because that was journalism. And when does opera make news? That's what I loved. I've never gotten over that sort of thrill of a lead or a, or a, an exclusive a story where you break news that was so fulfilling and then the mayor of san francisco gave us a day cleared <laughs> it michael corey day and Stuart wallace day that's incredible it was that's incredible with a lovely plaque and i said what do i get from my day he said you get to go shopping in all the stores but it's five of nine and they close in five minutes I was just thinking about, I mean, that sounds so stunning and beautiful, and I love the documentarian in you and the journalist in you to, to do that. And as I was thinking about you doing that, I started thinking about your other work. Well, it's all there. Yeah. Great gardens, war paint, that's what I love. Yeah, you really seem to be attracted to real stories. Real I people. do. I mean, really, Great Gardens was came about in such an interesting way. I guess it hadn't come out yet on DVD. 
And Scott Frankel was walking down the street, and the proverbial light bulb went off over his head. And he remembered having seen Grey Gardens at a revival house. And he came to me, and I had seen it years before. And I said, that's so crazy that I have to think about it seriously. And I rewatched the documentary. And honestly, when it came to the part where the mother, Edith, was sitting in a ratty old bed with the handyman, Jerry, and cooking him corn in a hot pot, and literally was sitting in the other bed feeling left out, I said, well, that's the whole story. And if I could write a song about this corn, then I could do this musical. But I didn't want to write the book. I've always felt I can write librettos for operas because it's all sung. But though I can write good dialogue, I don't feel I have the same parameters that a book writer does. I know how to shape a song and a musical scene, but I want a book writer to shape a play, a musical play. And we said, Doug Wright is the only one who can do this. And he said, well, it's a great idea, but I don't want to violate the documentary by just sticking songs in it. And Scott and I were at a loss because, you know, there's a deadline for these rights negotiations. If you don't have something lined up, you lose the right to do it. And we had negotiated with Albert Mazels to do it. He was great, by the way. I loved Albert. And Albert also spoke to little Edie on our behalf. And we were on our way to Florida to meet her when she died. But she had given her full cooperation and permission. She wrote this wonderful note. G.G. the musical. It must be historical. Must have singing and dancing. My beloved mother. And we, we have that note, too. Anyway, to convince Doug, at least we have to do something special. And... The documentary aspect, again, came into it. What, what's the real fact? We looked into the life before Spray Gardens became a room, and then we sat down and we said, what if we did 1941, Act 1, then a long time elapses in intermission, and you come back and it's a ruin. You don't explain what happened. You just, it's the relationship between the two acts. And then we talked to family members. We went to the house. Sally Quinn and Benjamin Bradley, who owned it, just got sold, but they owned it for a long time. We went there in the winter with the set designer, Alan Moyer, and we went up to what was Little Lady's bedroom, and it was the small bedroom. Actually, we learned more when we went there that the reason most of the documentary was filmed in that small room was because the house was never winterized. And they sealed off all the other rooms, and they lived in that tiny little room with plastic on the windows to stay warm. So I looked out at this view of scrubby crabgrass and everything going down to the ocean. I just said, this is so lonely. And I thought of what happens in a summer town when winter comes. And then that all started to form for me. So everything really comes from a real place. I, I don't know why. But it's probably why I don't need a lot of drugs and alcohol, because I can just go there. So tell me, I love all this research that you do. So you do all this, you mass all this research, you just soak it all up. That's, what, then, that's what you learn in journalism. Get all the facts, ask a lot of questions, then figure out what's the lead, what's the best lead. And I always do that. And people get exacerbated with me. They say, I'm pokey. Why can't you just give me a draft? Why can't you just give me something? And I just can't. 
until I have my facts in order. And then I depart from it. But I need to know them first. So tell me about that. You amass all that those facts. And then you are primarily a lyric first writer or how does it work for you? When the composer wants a lyric first, I'll do a lyric first, but sometimes only part of that lyric will strike the composer's musical and then they'll set a part of it and give me the rest of the music and I'll fill in. Or they'll give me music first. Some of the songs that you might not think are music first were and vice versa. Give me an example. Like that, that Patter song, The Revolutionary Costume of the Day, which is very funny and wordy and fast, almost Gilbert and Sullivan-y. That was music first. And I almost cried. It was so hard. But a song like Will You was lyric first. And then I remember we were at the Sundance Theater Festival. Before the show was done, Philip Hemberg heard about it and wanted to develop it and managed to get us in the very early days of writing Michael Greif and Christine Eversole and Mary Louise Wilson and John McMartin. And we all went down to the White Oaks Plantation, which was on the border of Florida and Georgia, basically in a very luxurious swamp. And they got impatient because we hadn't written the whole show. Mary Louise said, I could be home planting my garden. Why did you bring me here? So we had to write fast. And one day, Doug burst into my cabin. While I was taking a shower, he called into the shower. I figured out the ending. Little Edie tries to leave home and fails, just like the end of Act One, 40 years later, and you have to write a song about it. Oh, this afternoon. So I stared at this bush where this leaf was attached to the bush by a spider web and it was blowing. And I just thought of that song and that bedroom experience I had had, the winter in the summertime. And that song came. But Scott Frankel looked at it and he said, well, we're doing our reading tomorrow. And I think that the 11 o'clock song is a reprise of Around the World. We don't need to do this. But I don't like to, t- I knew it was good. And I think I, I think I might have slipped it to Christine. <laughs> Uh-huh. I Get think I might have done that. And Christine decided that it should be read during the reading. And she, she cried. And that meant it was in. And then all these people who were in the audience, helpful people like Mary Test and things like that, that was fantastic. You know what? You should do that as a poem. And Scott Frankel said, I'm going to end my show with an 11 o'clock poem. Forget it. And it got set to music. <laughs> So so that's a great example of like how the collaborative spirit between all of the writers and a book writer saying that's a song, not a dialogue. Tell me about how, just that well, collaboration. It took a long time. You know, my first collaborations, there was fighting. But eventually I remembered my newspaper training and basically came to the philosophy, though I might like an idea. Why should my collaborators have to sit through it if they feel uncertain about it and watch it a thousand times? If they're not, there's always a better way. So I, so sometimes it hurts, but I throw stuff out that I don't like. For this new reading we're starting on Monday, one of the actors who's very smart had some comments about a song, and my first reaction was, "Damn it, I love that the way it is." But today, this afternoon before I came here, I rewrote it. 
because I value the input of actors as well. And I find that they're smart. They have to do it every night. They have to make it real. Some people, you know, really don't want to hear from actors. And I think that's stupid. It took me a long time, to be honest, to figure that out. They're very smart. They've been doing this. They get on stage every night and they need to be listened to. And I believe that every time you hear about someone being difficult from some director, I'll never work with that person again. It's usually because they had ideas that weren't listened to. And I totally believe in listening to it. And I, I, believe, I listen to everybody except the light. <laughs> but you've worked with some pretty big actors. I've worked with big actors, <laughs> great directors. How do and you, I always have fun. How do you... What happens, though, when you, you can listen to them? But I don't know. Let's talk about Warpaint for a moment. Those are some... Pretty big names up there. What happens when you disagree, which I assume at times you're like, no, no, I I really do like it the way it is. There's a negotiation that goes on. And it, the best, it's as the same as it. The best idea wins. If Patty or Christine felt something was totally wrong for their character, we'd say, okay, and have a conference about that in, in the second room. That's how we got to the ending of the show. Doug had written a very long scene. Scott and I had written two other songs for that final scene where they meet. And there was a lot of back and forth and anger and recrimination. And they both felt very strongly that they would say nothing to each other for the longest time. And we went in there and they kind of mimed it out for us. And we realized that the silences were what was golden in that scene. And the not saying anything and the putting cake on their plate... They really got their way ahead of us. And I'm eternally grateful because that was a brilliant stroke of theater. And, you know, sometimes what you do is, okay, we'll try it your way. And then we'll try it my way and we'll see. And usually one or the other is convinced. I really never have had a problem with that. As you go about town and see lots of theater from emerging writers... Writers on Broadway, what's the biggest mistake that you see writers make when it comes to lyrics? Biggest flaw? I think, by the way, I should say I love the revival of Once on this Island. That was fantastic. Oh, Congratulations. I think what that show shows us is that every time you do a show, it's different. It's a new show. That was different from the original production. It became a new thing. And to a certain extent, though there are established rules and, and methods in musical theater writing, you kind of have to know them and then forget about them and make it new and let it have its own rules. I mean, who would have ever thought that a show like West Side Story would be able to told, be told the way it was through dance or that a chorus line would throw out the standard kind of book? They were new, but they were within... The parameters of what excites people in a musical. They had they never gave up those ingredients. So I think the biggest mistake pe young people make is to try and copy a model and say, well, this show had a song like that. Why can't we do that? And I think the other big mistake is what all these movie companies do now that they've decided that their catalogs are, have so filled with valuable properties of movies that did X number of millions on their first run, why can't they be a musical? And they do countless workshops, and they're not musicals because they're just movies where you stick in songs. 
The ones that do work are reinvented. The band's visit. That was a movie, but the musical is a whole new thing. Though it's that story. It lets the music carry the drama. And you don't stick in genre songs because it worked in that other show. I think that's it. To try and find your voice. Do you read reviews? I used to read reviews, and then I would have to take Xanax. I was taking too much Xanax. I don't read reviews now so much. I know everybody says that. What I may do is look at the website, Did He Like It? And see there's two thumbs down, two thumbs up, one ambiguous face. I figure out who said what. Or you hear things. You know, Lynn Nottage told me a funny story. You don't want to read reviews, but people want you to read them somehow. She said that her mother, friend, always sends her the clippings of bad reviews with the neatly written, I disagree. And she opens it up and she has to see it. So people, people want you to see these things. I don't know why, but I generally try to avoid them. You do know that I actually created Did He Like It? You know that? Oh, I didn't know it. That it's a very mine. useful yes. website. Well, thank you very much for that plug. Every, everybody, has, that was not attended. It has no visuals. What, uh, that's, that's my friend. <laughs> See that? We're making lyricists happy all over the world. What's the favorite lyric, Broadway lyric, that you haven't written? Do you have a favorite? Do you have something that you think is just such a fantastic song? Oh, wow. Which you wrote? I like so many different shows and different kinds of shows. I mean... I loved Hamilton. I love Frank Lesser. I love Stephen Sondheim. Sometimes the simple ones are the ones I wish I had written. Like, look, look, look to the rainbow. Follow the rainbow, fellow who follows a dream. I never would have thought of that. It's so simple, and that I get jealous of. I'm actually the same way. One of my favorite lyrics is Maria. Yeah. Like, who else would have the balls to just say Maria, Maria, Maria over and over and over again? Right. Uh, I just love it. What advice would you give to someone who listens to this podcast and says, lyrics, I want to write lyrics for the Broadway theater. I'm going to, like you, make a go of it starting today. What's the best way to start a career writing in the theater these days? Well, it depends where you're coming from. If you're a playwright who wants to write lyrics, I would say finish your plays, learn what your voice is before you get mired in the bog of musicals. <laughs> Establish your voice and then people will want you to write the books to musicals. If you're just coming at it from the pop world and you don't really know theater lyrics, there is a difference. You know, a show, a score like Hamilton has it all. But it, he knows all the tools. We just had this argument the other day. I belong to the publications committee at the Dramatists Guild, which is five floors down in this building. And we were, the editor proposed, you know what? Why don't we have an article about rhyme, the controversy about rhyme? Well, I was going to ask about this question, right. the big controversy. That's so I'm right. So glad. And. They said, we think that the younger generation doesn't like to use rhyme as much. And I said, that's very interesting, because I find that some of the biggest rock stars, when they move towards live theater, use more rhyme. Sting and Sarah Bareilles, and, and there's a reason for that, and it's not just stylistic. I think that, you know, in opera, you have super titles. You can read the opera if you can't understand it. But in theater... 
it's actually work for the audience to sit and take all this in through music. Thank God that our great lyricists like, you know, Sondheim and Sheldon Harnick trained an audience at Oscar Hammerstein how to listen to a song and get content from it. But it's hard work and you can't read it. And I, what I think a rhyme is like is like the straight line to the punchline. It sets up an expectation in the audience's ear. And if you put the right word on the rhyme, you can score that point as the music is flying by and the audience will retain it. Particularly in comedy songs, it's very hard to get a laugh in a comedy song if you don't set up the gag. You have, if, if there's a rhyme, they'll laugh. You know, even, you know, Tim Rice and Andrew Lord, who didn't always rhyme, when they did a comedy song, Jesus, show me you're no fool, walk across my swimming pool. Ha ha, because it rhymed. If they wrote, Jesus, show me you're no jerk, walk across my swimming pool, that would sit there like a latka. But I hope you won that argument or whatever discussion you were involved in there. Actually, we punted. Lynn Ahrens, who you know very well, was asked to participate in in the ceremony. I was telling tales out of school, but she said, you know what? I don't want to talk about rhyme. And I said, you know what? I don't want to talk about rhyme either. And they came up with a different idea. It's just, listen, we could have done this podcast on just the last couple of minutes because that's a... Such a very insightful way to think about rhyme. Yeah, I don't think of it as a stylistic device. I think it is a communication, and it's purely a tool for a lyricist to score the points. And that's what a lot of critics who talk about the cleverness of Cole Porter's rhymes and why can't they be clever like that, it has nothing to do with that. Perhaps in the day when those were the pop standards of the day, and they were creating Tin Pan Alley chart hits. These days, it's about telling the story. And it's not about seeming clever like Cole Porter. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and wants to thank you for your contributions to the American musical theater and the opera and telling these great real stories on stage. And by granting you one wish... What's the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway that makes you angry, gets you upset, that you would beg this genie to change with that wish? Well, I'll give you two. The thing that drives me crazy about opera, since I go back and forth, is that you don't get previews. And it opens on what would be your first preview. And you know what? You learn so much from the audience. And... That drives me crazy. And what drives me crazy in theater, on particularly Broadway, is that I used to be able to go for three bucks and sit in the last row. And I'm worried that young people can't see things. It's too expensive. And I would like the genie to fix that. I know that they keep a couple of seats aside for Rush. I would just like to see a more democratically priced theater. Very good wish and a wish held by many of us. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. Now, go right to my Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport. Click like and make sure you watch my Every Day is Different series, giving you a glimpse of what I do every single day. Check it out, facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport. We will see you on the next podcast.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.